I'm Simon from Kent Libraries, and this is On The Books, the library show born out of lockdown that talks about all things written word. Thoughts, ideas, inspirations, and much, much more. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. On The Books today, Ellen Caldercott, lover of books, teacher of the written word, and award-winning children's author. Good morning. Uh, welcome to our slice of Canterbury Library. Today we're carrying on our online interviews with authors and I have the pleasure uh, and joy of Ellen Caldercott being with me today. So it's lovely to meet you and thank you for being with us. Absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Ellen has done many things in her time. Uh, she's been an archaeologist, a nurse, uh, she's worked in a theatre as a theatre usher, she's worked in a cinema and as a museum security guard. But obviously today we are concerned with her writing. I believe you were also, for your first book, uh, put up for the Waterstones Prize shortlisted. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, so, yeah, it was great. I like to start with one sort of opening question which I've filled it to everyone who's agreed to do this so far, and you're going to be no exception. And the question is, which books have inspired you or changed your life? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's, uh, going back a really long time, um, there was the book that opened up reading for me so I learned how to read you know I, I could technically read but I didn't get particular pleasure from it until I read James and the Giant Peach oh. um, by Roald Dahl and that was the first time that I started hallucinating from reading yep. Yep. <laughs> and you know and I forgot about myself and I was inside a giant peach with all those you know insects um <laughs> so that was pretty important um later on i read a book called um strike at ratcliffe's rags which is by gillian phillip um of the demon headmaster fame yeah um and that was an incredible book to read because it's um up until that point i've been reading quite small c conservative children's fiction mm -hmm. so um you know, books with jolly hockey sticks and school midnight feasts and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then in this book, it's, it was a contemporary book um, written in the 80s, I think. And it was about unionising a factory. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there were children in it and children were leading the kind of, it was a sweatshop and they would, they would, um, they were wanting to get the adults to have better working conditions. And I'd never read any politics. I'd never read anything political for, for children. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a pretty mind expanding book as well. Yeah. Is that where your love of, of reading and the written word came from? Sort of the, those early books, is that where it all expanded from? Yeah, I was a voracious reader as a child um, and I would reread anything that I loved. So I was, you know, maybe uh, thirty percent of my time spent asleep, thirty percent of my time being me, and thirty percent of my time being somebody else in a book. <laughs> it, it's always lovely being somebody else in a book. I mean, that yeah. is the joy of, of, of reading, isn't it? Really, yeah, it really is. Transport yourself into all sorts of things. So, I have to ask then: When did you know you wanted to be a writer? I not until I was much older. Um, I, I wrote stories in primary school, so um, 
you know, I was always, <laughs> I was one of those children who was, you know, run up to the teacher and say, I've written this, you know, and, and, and this, this, you know, these baggy wayward stories where everything's and then, and then, and then in the structure. <laughs> um, I was really keen. I was really enthusiastic as a, as a writer, but um, I didn't actually realize that I could be an author. Um, I didn't really, I, I loved English. I loved books and I thought I would become an English teacher. Yep. Because that was the only job that I could uh, envisage for myself yeah. somehow. Um, so I didn't know any writers. I didn't. I didn't know how books got written. So yeah, it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I took this hobby seriously. Yeah, but books being written—that is a real mystery to a lot of people. No one yeah. really knows the the process that goes behind the production of a book. So yeah. that's always fascinating to me. So how did how did you find how did you fall into being or how did you find becoming an author? There you go. <laughs> um, well, this was in the early two thousands that I started treating it seriously, and it's a different world. It's really hard to imagine now not having information at your fingertips yeah. not having communities of writers you know in social media and, and 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 just being able to google something you couldn't google anything didn't exist <laughs> no it didn't no <laughs> so um i got myself a copy of the uh, writers and artists yearbook yep. um the, the children's edition and actually, I've I've just yesterday ordered the twenty twenty version, twenty twenty one version of that book because it's still at the heart of um, of learning about the industry, as far as I'm concerned. And I just worked my way through it, um, and yeah, took my first manuscript and sent it out, hopefully in packages in the post. Yeah, it took a while. And then, yes, obviously, you did get published, and your first book, you were actually nominated for the Waterstones. Uh, uh, well, shortlisted, weren't you, for the Waterstones Prize for your first novel? How did that feel? It was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, such a boost because I think uh, the, the, I, I ended up actually doing an MA in um, uh, writing for children yep. at Bath Spa, and um, that had kind of given me a glimpse into the publishing world, but I still didn't really know what to expect. Um, and then yeah, there was this kind of heady night in uh, London in Waterstones Piccadilly where um, we were given bottles of champagne and, and um, yeah, got to, to, to meet all these other amazing writers and some of whom are, are, I'm still friends with actually. Um, yeah, significant time on. And actually I think Sally Nichols had won the year before, yep. um, who's also a Bath Spa alumni. So she kind of yeah, she is, uh, took yeah. a few of us under her wing and um, yeah, made us feel welcome. So yeah, it was great. It was a really lovely event. Actually, ironically, Sally has agreed to let me interview her as well. So that's- Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> the Marsh Road Mysteries, it's kind of what you're well known within our library for, for sure. Um, and I believe you've 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 done the final one of those. Is there any mm -hmm. plans for more of them, or is, is that it? You, 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 I, I think yeah, that's it. There there are um, there are five children in the gang, and right at the beginning, we envisaged each child having their moment in the limelight. Yeah, um, so yeah, it's a pretty complete set, I think, as it yeah. stands. It's nice when you get a complete set, though, isn't it? Sometimes mm. you get something that gets 
just carried on and it loses some of its magic. So I get, I get that each one's had their moment in the limelight. That makes perfect sense. Which does lead me quite nicely onto The Short Knife, um, okay. which is, is, is uh, the novel this year, isn't it? Yes, yes. And it just came out in July. It came out in July. And a, a bit of a departure being that it's historic, historical fiction, really. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious, what made you decide to, what, what drew you to a historical setting? Language, actually. So, so um, before I knew what The Short Knife was going to be, yep. I knew that I wanted to write something that used the Welsh language. I, I, I grew up in North Wales um, and, and I'm bilingual. And I wanted to write a book that was somehow bilingual. Yep. Um, and that actually came from, from Diamonds and Daggers, which is the first book in yep. the Marsh Road Mysteries series. It has a Polish family. And some of the comments that I'd had from editors um, were about the English that are spoken by the Polish family. Yeah. And at the beginning of the book, I'd said something like, they always speak in Polish. Um, and then I'd forgotten about it. So every time they speak English in, on the page, they're actually speaking Polish. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, because the editors had said, oh, their English is so good, there are no, there are no errors, there's, you know, it's so... Um, <laughs> um, I obviously hadn't done a good enough job in my mind of representing Polish people speaking yeah. Polish in English. Yes. So I thought, how can you do that? How can you mix two languages together so that it makes sense, but it's clear that it's not English that yeah, is being cool. spoken? Yeah. Um, and the, oh, so that was what I wanted to do. It was a, it was a challenge to do with language. And Welsh is the obvious language for me to tackle that of course, with, of because course. I can speak it. <laughs> um, and so out of that grew this idea of a historical novel of, of the point um, in, the British, in British history where English and Welsh met for the first yep. time, um, which is the fifth century, and the kind of fight for dominance of, of the language that's been going on ever since, really. Um, yeah. So that's where the that's where the the idea came from. So yeah. That does lead me to the question: What sort of research did you have to do for fifth century Wales? <laughs> lots. It took such a long time to write this book. Um, lots and lots of research. So, uh, some of my favourite bits of research were around the language. Um, so I. I have a dictionary of Welsh idioms, um, Welsh to English. And normally when you're translating idioms, if you buy a, you know, an English, French idiomatic dictionary, yeah. it won't tell you literally what the idiom means. It tells you what your equivalent is. Of course. So yeah. that you can use them in conversation. Yeah. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to retranslate the dictionary and literally translate the idioms to see what they looked like so that took months to do that yeah. <laughs> um there's loads of historical research in terms of the timelines yeah um there aren't very many um original sources or in fact primary sources from the fifth century there's, there's a tiny handful so it didn't take long to look at those um but i did read you know a bit of bead and um a bit of Gildas and things like that. And then my, I think my favourite uh, bit of physical research was to go to experimental archaeology sites. Oh, okay. So there are, um, 
there are recreated Anglo-Saxon buildings and Celtic buildings around the country. Um, so I went and I sat in them with my notebook and sort of sniffed and touched and uh, <laughs> yeah, just made myself at home in these buildings. Um, so that was fantastic. I think that's an amazing element of, of, of sort of living history and experimental archaeology where um, I'm, I follow someone named Todd Cutler, Todd Cutler's workshop. He does, he looks at weaponry, but he reads Oh, wow. Um, and it's that whole like learning by doing and we get an idea of what possibly could have happened yeah actually using the materials and going and the one thing I think that's come out of that and I don't know if you would agree on it is our ancestors were far cleverer than we ever give them credit for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's true I think that's true almost everything yeah. we, they might not have had the materials but they definitely had knowledge they might not have had yeah. the words that we have now but they definitely yeah. had numerous pieces of knowledge like yeah, anything yeah, to do with yeah. experimental archaeology like you can get me going on that it's not about <laughs> um so i was going to ask can you speak welsh but you've already answered that um, so can you give us an example of welsh um have you thank you very much uh, i don't speak any welsh so what was any of that that was um good morning um i'm very happy to be here with everyone I mean, the Welsh language does sound beautiful, um, totally intelligible to, uh, to someone who comes from the other side of the country uh, mm. and never spoke in any form of, of ancient language, but, but it does sound beautiful. Language was the key driver, really, about, about the, the setting. But how did you, what did you find most enjoyable about discovering the character of May? Uh, is May, is that how it's pronounced? M-A-I? Uh, it's my, my but, it, okay. but it can be any, I, I'm not precious about people's <laughs> pronunciations. <laughs> Have a go, having a go is much better than getting it right, in my opinion. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, she was a really, she was a really interesting character to, to work on. Um, she was kind of... Um, I don't know her voice came first so so I spent a lot of time just thinking about how she would speak and how she would see the world um and yeah so getting to know her through writing is that is that learning by doing again yeah. um actually just it's, it's writing as if I was her in various settings was so important um so in the in these kind of um the experimental archaeology sites but I also went to there's a, a kind of um i live in bristol yeah and there's a little piece of ancient wood that's in the middle of the city and there's an iron age fort in the middle of the city um so i went there quite often i would just go up there and walk the dog and then sit in the woods and write um and just kind of found my way into her, her character through that connection with landscape and language it was yeah it was lovely that's the bit that always fascinates me about historical fiction how we do the landscape because how much our landscape has or hasn't changed, it would be fascinating to be able to go and look and yeah. see what it was. Yeah, Because yeah. we can only yeah. guess. Uh, I can imagine it must have been stunning. Uh, and Wales is beautiful. So I am yeah. fifth century must have been absolutely stunning. Um, as a, so if you're writing a historical, uh, historical setting, what sense of responsibility do you feel to telling it as close to as it was as we know as opposed to dramatizing it the reason i ask that is because you read novels and if you can we take them as that's the way things are 
um, where, where obviously that might be the case where it's radically different. I'm yeah. just curious how you balance that sensibility. Um, well, I guess I, my, my original degree was ancient history and archaeology. Right. Um, so in some, oh, my dog is going to bark in a minute. She's looking at a big dog out the window, Peggy. <laughs> Think again. It's fine. Our, our library has opened up again, so we've got background noise today, so that's good. <laughs> she's, she's just looking at the moment. Might be okay. Um, yeah, so my original degree was um, ancient history and archaeology. And so in some sense, you know, I've got access, you know, I can read a site report, for example. So I did yeah. do that. I, I, I have in mind particular sites that have been excavated and I went and I looked. Yeah. Um, so I felt responsible in that sense. But having said that, I think having studied it also gives me an understanding or appreciation of how much our stories about the past have changed over time. And that, um, you know, the way that we view the Anglo-Saxons in, in the, I don't know, in the 1900s compared to 1950s compared to 2000s, it's changed radically. Um, yep. And that's not necessarily to do with more or better information. It's just, it's often to do with how we think about ourselves. Okay. Um, so that, you know, there is a link between what do the English think about themselves now yep. and how do they think about their ancestors? It gets revised through history. Oh, yeah. So actually I don't mind if the facts are being channeled through my ideas of who we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's, that's what history is doing all the time. And then every time we revise history, it's because we have revised something about ourselves, not necessarily not, the evidence. I, I think it's the misconception that history is static. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. we don't even call it the Dark Ages anymore because we now no. know more through archaeological finds and everything like that. It's not as isolated as we thought it was. Absolutely not. Saxons traded everywhere. I mean, yeah. well, it's, it's amazing what, what, you're right, as we filter. And I've never really thought about as we filter it through our own perceptions and our own view of ourselves. So that's really fascinating. That's something to make me go away and think. Oh, good. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a real struggle with the, um, the, the marketing material for the book because a lot of places it does say Dark Ages. And as a, you know, a semi-historian, I was looking at that and going, oh, we can't really call it the Dark Ages. But then trying to explain why it's not the Dark Ages anymore in a, in a little piece of marketing. <laughs> it was so hard. Just can't do it, we can just had to, let it, had to let it go. It's yeah. a bit like the Wars of the Roses. It's like, thank you, the Victorians, but it really wasn't the Wars of the yeah. Roses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Lancaster and York. Very little to do with Lancaster yeah. or York, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I get what you mean. And, and marketing, yeah, I've only got a little space. I can't change everyone's perception now. I like this question because I think it's relevant. We live in an age of devices now. Um, they're everywhere. Um, I remember growing up, the mobile phone was, you could text on it if you were lucky and play Snake. And now they're miniature computers. Um, yeah. So in an age of devices, do you still think the, the book has a place, the printed book? All the written word and if so how for me it certainly does um, <laughs> um i i do i mean i think that our, our conception of what of what a book is has to change so um you know this summer 
I've, in fact, all of lockdown, um, I have been reading more than ever and more widely yep. than ever, I think, because um, things like anthologies, um, short story collections, um, I, I'm currently reading a, a an anthology of um, uh, global conversations, so people kind of from all around the world yep. um, responding to, to climate change. Um, I've just needed that connection with um, with that with the wider world and books are a great way to, to sustain that but I've also heard people say that they just haven't been um, they haven't been able to concentrate or that um, you know big uh, big books have been intimidating yep. um, and so I've uh, you know I've been really um, interested in how people have turned to audio books yes, um, and that uh, you know families are kind of sharing um, I've got friends who are uh, listening to whole audiobooks together yep. um, and, I, and, and somehow that kind of reminds me of, of 19th century, you know, evenings where somebody would read from a book to a family. Um, so I think that books have been a real um, lifeline over the past few months. Yeah. Um, but also we don't necessarily have to have a physical book um, that, that actually any way that people are you know interacting with stories and, and feeling nourished by stories is um is perfectly valid i think yeah i i, I couldn't agree with you more to be honest um, as working in a library obviously i like physical books we're surrounded by them but the, the e-books are amazing and accessibility and as you say audiobooks are a wonderful thing i think audiobooks yeah. are fantastic it's almost yeah. like the art of storytelling the historical art of storytelling is making a resurgence and especially when you get wonderful people narrating these books it's yeah it's glorious yeah 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 and i have to say you know my i i have all of the library apps on my phone which i which i do use so you know the fact that libraries closed you know in one sense the doors closed but i was still uh you know, still being able to access um, e-books and, um, you know, having them on my phone <laughs> on these devices. It's, it's, from Kent Library's point of view, we saw a massive surge in online use when the doors physically closed. Yeah. And our e-uptake was absolutely huge. So, so we're really pleased that more people accessed in a time where they couldn't physically get through the doors. So that, that's always yeah. nice. It's nice that elsewhere that happened too. So that's always good. Written yeah. word stays strong. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask them, what do libraries mean to you then? Because obviously I work in a public library, so it's always good to hear what people think of a library or what they mean to people. It's really practical for me. I cannot, I cannot buy and store the number of books that I want to read. You know, it's, I, I live in a two up, two down terrace. Um, <laughs> you can probably see that my, my, my storage system is just pile them high and wait for them to fall over. Um, so all the books, all the bookshelves in the house are full, um, and there's no real room for any more. So it's just practical. I want to know, um, I, I want to know what's being written by the best talent that's, um, you know, working at the moment. Yep. I love reading, yep. and libraries are, are just a really practical way for me to 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 stay on top of all the amazing books that come out. They're they're. What would you do otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I like I like the fact it sounds like you couldn't think of anything but a library. No, that's perfect. Um, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't afford I can't afford my my book habits if it wasn't for libraries. <laughs> for libraries, we're pushers. That's what we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think I think you're right. Libraries are exactly that. If you don't have access to books or you don't have the money for the books that you want, you shouldn't be denied, denied access to books. Books are wonderful. Yeah. More yeah. people should read. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, for, and some, you know, in terms of the ecosystem, yes. library purchasing is just so important to, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of writers who can't get stocked or don't get stocked in, in supermarkets. Yeah, of course. The, the, the fact that libraries promote your, buy your books, promote your books and share them with readers is just essential. And then, of course, PLR. Hooray. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they're an essential part of the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, there is nothing better than going to a library or, well, a bookshop, but I would say library, and there is something you would never have encountered, and it jumps out at you, and you find a gem, and you're like, mm. that would never have been the case if I hadn't gone around and just browsed. Yeah. Um, so that, that is the joy of a library, finding things you wouldn't normally find. I do like to ask the question, if you could have written any book, what book do you wish you had written? Mm. Um, <laughs> That's actually, it's not too difficult because I have um, uh, Holes, Holes right. by Louis Sackar um, is, 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 is my idea of a perfect book. Right. Um, yeah, it's just so clean and so clever and so beautifully structured. Yep. Um, there isn't a line, a word out of place. Um, <laughs> and the plot, is like the, the, the beauty of, of the plot is it just fits together um like machinery you yep. know it's 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 so beautifully designed um that i can't imagine i can't imagine having the imagination <laughs> to be able to conceive of of a book that's so perfect so yeah stone cold <laughs> well that's good um i can't say i have have read it so i need to have I, I, anyone just said that the, the inspired books i'm gonna have to go away and read yeah I, yeah i was once given advice by a I think everyone has a teacher at some point where they go, that's the one that, that, and I had a teacher who gave me advice years ago now, which was if you ever recommended a book, read it. Even oh, if you nice. don't like it, yeah. it was recommended for a reason. And that yeah. steered me well yeah. over the years. Yeah. I suppose, um, I suppose I wanted to ask what's next for you. I mean, you've, you've, you've published this year. What have you got mm -hmm. in the works? I'm writing, um, at the moment, uh, another book that's uh, that's inspired by Wales. Um, okay. It's it's for younger readers again, mm -hmm. um, and at the moment, it's it's unclear quite what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> it has some elements that I really love. Um, so it's got um, the short knife was uh, some of the elements are inspired by. Um, uh, uh, myths and legends yep. so the book that I'm working on now it's contemporary in as much as you know the the two main characters um, live on a um, a regular estate in a you know common yep. garden um, Welsh village um, but there's kind of elements of magic and um, fantasy with kind of yeah entrances to the underworld through old mine shafts um, but I also there's also some element of um, 
environmental writing in there as well because I want the world to be a little bit you know what if we have done all the things that we need to do to um to just you know just to to halt the the progress of climate change so so there's a little bit of that in and I'm not sure quite how much environmental writing and how much fantasy there should be so there's a little bit of a struggle going on but that's what I'm working on just now is that how you find your working uh, your writing works it evolves um as you mm. go along much more than you you've got a clear idea where it's going to end yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it very much does I'm I'm I have to write a good three or four drafts before I'm certain what <laughs> what I'm going to be doing yeah so I'm mid draft three at the moment so I'm getting there I'm getting, getting there, there. Yeah. Um, I mean, that does lead the question then. What inspires you to write? Where do you get your inspirations from? Um, it's evolved over time. So, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, 10, 12 years now. Um, and initially, it was kind of people and real life situations. Yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting more interested in landscape um, and setting and... The kind of histories of places at the moment that's where my um you know when you, you just hear some things and you go Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and i'm not sure what the word for that is that, <laughs> um but that's what i'm feeling uh over the past few years is is that that's where i'm being led um and then I, that can be fed by images a lot of the time so so i i i create mood boards yeah. um for books and um yeah, kind of assemble um, the, the physical things that are going to be in it and use that as inspiration. So there's a kind of link between themes and objects that, that are really fruitful for me. That makes sense. That, I, I, I completely see where that's coming from. It's, it's very interesting listening to each person's different creative process because it, it's as different as each person. I mean, there is mm. no set way. I no, think that's something anyone who wants to write needs to take away is that there's no set way to be creative. Creative yeah. is, is you just, just go with yeah. what works for you. Yeah. Um, and that that evolves as well. So yeah. something that, something that worked for you last time, um, you know, it, may, it was great doing its job last time, but if it's not working for you, try something different this time. Yeah. You don't have to stay um, with where you were a year ago or two years ago. You can evolve, which is, yeah, yeah our, our society does like pigeonholing us and putting us in boxes. Yeah. Though, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, that does lead me on to. So you did did write um, sort of everyday characters, sort of facing extraordinary situations. Uh, was that a conscious choice, or did that just sort of come out of uh, of somewhere? It was reasonably conscious, I think. Um, yeah i was i was meeting um a lot of young people through school visits yep. um and um you know getting a getting messages from 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 young people and and i was i am still but at the time when i was writing um the first kind of few books with with Bloomsbury and the marsh road mysteries yeah I, I was very interested in the experience of children growing up now and how that differs yep. um 
and the older I get, I think the the the, the more of a distance there is between my childhood and their childhood. That actually, it's probably quite natural that that your interests start to to evolve because there just is too much imaginative space. Yeah. To, to do a convincing job. I mean, some people do an amazing job of of staying in touch with with contemporary experience of childhood. Some writers are great at it. Um, but I think in my twenties, I was just that much closer to, yeah. you know, yeah, children. that far removed. And now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although when yeah. you're a child, you think the people in their twenties are really old. <laughs> yes, yes, <I> certainly did. <laughs> so um, what made you write for children? Why did you decide to write for children? Not really sure. Um, okay. I. I had been made redundant right. from a job, um, from the museum job that I had. And so I'd been given a redundancy payment. Yeah. Um, and I thought, great, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to write, I'm going to use this money for nothing yeah. um, to, to, to live on whilst I write a book. And I had started writing a, a book for adults that was, oh, I was, you know, I was trying to write the next American novel but set in London <laughs> you know it was it was weak um, and it wasn't working and, yeah. and I had this idea for a children's book and so what I would do is force myself to write this adult book yeah and then once I'd written a certain number of words I would um, reward myself by letting myself write the children's book and then after uh, you know a couple of months of doing this I thought why am I doing this I should just write the thing that makes me happy yeah um, so yeah, and then I didn't look back after yeah. after that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Again, I mean, yes, we do that a lot as well, don't we? It's like we should be doing this, but this is what actually I enjoy. And yeah. yeah, and then somewhere it clicks and goes, "Hang on, do the yeah. thing I enjoy." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder why we do that. I, I wonder why we stick with things that really make us miserable when there's something else that makes us happy. But well, there we go. <laughs> no, no, no. no for a little while. <laughs> you're a writer you're meant to know these truths isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah well I wasn't worried about what people thought of me or anything you know it wasn't yeah. that it wasn't I think maybe I just hadn't realized how um honest you can be when you're writing for for children and that you can talk about big ideas and do it in a nice simple and direct way um, and that that actually gives you more freedom than if you're writing for adults who who expect a certain kind of book to do a certain kind of thing no, yeah. there's no there's no not so much playfulness and 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 experimentation and yeah joy I think um, well I, I shouldn't say that they might, might get letters from adult writers saying how dare you um, <laughs> But from my forced experience of trying to do that, there wasn't. Well, I mean, I'd, it's not an uncommon um, theme, actually. Uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, one of my, um, my favourite authors, uh, in his Sandman series, he talks about uh, there's dream, uh, there's del uh, uh, delirium and delight, uh, a character that changes. And it, it's about, as, you know, as a child, we have delight. And then somewhere down the line, we are that's 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 taken away from us we're not mm. sure where it's taken away that that innocent enjoyment of everything and then there's like yeah. 
this is the way we should be you know and, yeah and we, we somehow lose that that joy of everything and there has to be certain ways that things have to be uh, i'm not entirely sure that's the right way to go either to be honest but there yeah, we go yeah. <laughs> yeah. i have to ask then so i said neil gaiman's one of my favorite authors and inspires me as, as a creative person which authors inspire you as a creative person um well i was just thinking about that this morning actually um uh I think that if Hilary Mackay wrote a shopping list, <laughs> I would still want to read it. <laughs> um, I've never read anything by her that, that has been less than, than gorgeous. Um, so she's a real inspiration. And I think also she, um, her work um, has that lovely balance of, uh, of contemporary and being about children's lives, but also offering you know a little tiny bit of magic or and, and and in fact one of my favorite books by her um which is called um wishing for tomorrow nice. which is a sequel to um the little princess and and it just treats its child readers with such enormous respect that it's it's absolutely gorgeous so we get um you know an understanding of why this school in the little princess which is just it's just bad it's just mean it's just yeah. you know it, it, uh, hillary kind of says no well think about it think about why people might be bad why they might be mean why they might be cruel they've all got things going on um you know you, you need a theory of mind to understand other people you need empathy yeah. um and i just think that that's such a wonderful message and um, and then it's, it's just written brilliantly. So yeah, I would I would read her shopping lists. <laughs> Do you ever find that you suffer from imposter syndrome? Oh, all the time. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, of course, all the time. Yeah, it's really difficult to. You get, when you write something, you have to have two hats on. Right. You know, you have to be you have to be the freewheeling. Anything goes. Let's take delight in this person who's just who believes that they've got something worth reading something worth talking about um, and then you need to also be your own editor so you need to look for your flaws you need to look for your own flaws um, and try and correct them and it's so hard to be hopeful and critical of yourself at the same time but yes. you you have to be and and that of course can just lead you to you know you're just waiting for everyone to turn around and point and say you're you're not hopeful you're delusional and you can't edit for toffee <laughs> so, yeah yeah of course i, I think anyone who's creative at some point or any profession gets that oh they're going to find out i'm a complete fraud when they aren't but but we, yeah. We, yeah yeah imposter syndrome it's it's a terrible fire thing when you start a project when when you've got you you've you've got your your ideas kind of in place you've got some of your research ready how do you overcome the blank screen or the dreaded white page how do you actually do you struggle to actually begin i don't actually oh. um i don't struggle to begin because i know that it's not whatever i write is not going to stay right okay um there is no way that my chapter one is going to stay being my chapter one right so kind of doesn't matter what I write yeah okay <laughs> um, in that first in that first go and um 
I can't remember who said it, but but there there is the writer who said that you can't write chapter one until you've written your last chapter. Right. Um, and and I and I know that to be true. So at least in my case, I'm sure that people who plan meticulously um, know exactly what their chapter one needs to do, but I don't know. So I, yeah, I'm not precious about that first that first go. I remember reading something on Tolkien. Um, Lord of the Rings is one of my favourite books. And he, apparently when he was writing, he started at the beginning, got to a certain point, disliked it and completely restarted over yeah. and over again. Wow. Just, oh, yeah, how do you do that? I mean, <laughs> apparently the, the opening of the, the, the beginning of the, uh, the uh, Fellowship of the Ring was rewritten about six or seven times completely wow. from the start because he got wow. to the point and still got stuck. Yeah. But not today, but... <laughs> <laughs> And there's, there's already so many words there. Yeah. I wonder, wonder what the, uh, yeah, did, uh, yeah. Did he keep any of his, is there a I think version some, you I can read, get? Of I, I the, think did actually uh, keep, there are diaries of sort of his opening drafts. Uh, they are out there. It would be interesting to read them one day, I suppose. Yeah, I yeah. They ever get released. You've mentioned lockdown and you've mentioned a, your, um, you know, the mind and, and so forth. So I, I'm all curious, at the moment, mental health is, is a really big thing. And rightly so, we are much more aware of mental health in, in, in the modern world than we used to be. What do you think reading does for mental health? Do you, do you think it has advantages or disadvantages? Um, I've, I've read studies about empathy right. and, and reading, that there, that there are connections between um you know experiencing life as someone else for a little while mm. um can can increase your your empathy whether that ultimately is good for your mental health <laughs> <laughs> you know if you're if you're if you're if you're worried about everybody um i i'm not sure i mean i think i think that for me it has been so necessary to feel connected with a wider world and to whilst you know whilst we have been stuck in one place yeah. um that that being free for a little while to travel yeah and to to not to escape because it hasn't you know i, I mean i've been i've been um i've been okay with with where i am and and, and my setup but um i still think that you know, we all we all need holidays and yep. to to not be worrying about the the our to do lists and you know and the stresses and stressors of of everyday life. Um, and for me, a, a book is a short holiday. You know, it's it it is a weekend away. It's a spa day. Um, so so yeah yeah for me, just that that ability to switch off for a while and not be thinking about what comes next, what my next tasks, responsibilities, duties. Yeah, it's a really important bit of my, care. My next question is to do with the fact that you teach creative writing for children. So <laughs> without, without uh, any names or any shaming or anything like that, what, is your, what, is, what do you find most joyful and most stressful about teaching the process of writing? Um, I think most any teacher will know that um, when you when you have a student that not just 
understands what they need to do with one piece of work, but actually what that whole, um, the application of that whole concept can be for future projects. It's, it's, it's like a, you know, it's, it's a door opening. Yeah. Um, so whenever a student has, has really understood a technical point or a, a little piece of theory and, and they, their eyes widen and they go, oh, of course, of course, I can now do this forever and my writing will be better. Um, so those moments when, yes, a student understands that the application of something that you've, that you've sought to teach them just using one example, they see it. Um, so I love that. Um, and I think, I think the thing that I, definitely without naming any names, um, <laughs> the thing that's hardest is when a student isn't quite ready to learn. Right. And I think that that's completely part of the writing journey is that you, you know, at the beginning, you just have to have that joy, that hope, that enthusiasm. You've got to have the confidence, you know, I talked about earlier. You've got to have the confidence that you've got something to say. Yeah. Um, and sometimes a student comes with that and it's great, they need it, um, but then they, they, they're not quite ready to take the next step, which is to be an editor, which, you know, to, to think maybe this isn't great, maybe I do need to change. And I think that it'll come, it comes eventually to everybody that, you know, you, you get to see what a great piece of writing you can produce with a little bit more application and thought and discussion. Um, yeah, but not all students are ready when they, they come to a to a class and, and that's that's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah, that, that gets frustrated. I get that entirely. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, I see what that there. Yes, that would make that makes perfect sense to me. My last question then, I have one last question for you, and then I'm gonna uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, you've alluded to it earlier, but I just want it to be spoken about. Your bookshelves, I can see that yeah. there are piles behind you. I, I completely agree with that. That's how my bookshelves are. But do you organise your bookshelves? And if you do, how do you organise them? I try. Um, <laughs> so these are all books that I need yeah. for courses that I'm teaching or um, things that I'm reading or researching. Um, so these are all live. Yeah, this yeah. is the inbox. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and these are organized by when did I last use them? So they'll have kind of dropped towards the bottom. So I can kind of, I can find things here because I know what's likely to be here. Um, the rest of the house, so kind of downstairs bookshelves are subject ordered. So all oh, right. of the history books together, all of the non-fiction is together, all of the fiction for children, fiction for adults, but it's not alphabetized. So I can, drive myself crazy looking for something that I know I own and I can't find it. <laughs> so one of these days I will alphabetize everything. I will do it properly, but um, it hasn't happened yet. Is your husband an avid reader? No. No, right. No, okay. no he so pretends he is. Uh, he is a very selective and precise reader. So whatever, right. the, whatever the big book or two or three books of the year are, yeah he will read those so that he can talk about the, <laughs> the big books of the year and it gives this impression that he's well read <laughs> sorry we'll, we'll edit that bit out we don't have to put that up <laughs> he doesn't mind he knows <laughs> <laughs> so, so
so does, does he mind the house being full of books or, or yes he does actually does. yeah yeah it's one of our every every couple of years i have to take um, things yeah books out and send them to a charity shop <laughs> or to the school I, I sort them out actually there's a school just across the road and yeah. they do quite well for um getting good quality new newish children's books because I, I do donate them to their library we have to do something similar in the libraries because obviously we're always renewing our stock so so mm. things in the end have to go and we send them to charities so that they carry on being used so i do understand that yeah. <laughs> just on a smaller scale yeah yeah it's quite sad when that happens <laughs> always hard to talk books isn't it yeah <laughs> on that note, and there are always libraries that's the, that's the there are always libraries so on that note, I really just have to say thank you very much again for, for joining us. Uh, a real joy. Yeah, real pleasure to talk about. Pleasure talking to you. Uh, good luck with the short knife. Um, thank you. We, we, we will uh, make sure that people read it in our library. I can guarantee it. It, 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 it was stunning. I, I really enjoyed it. So, so Thank you. Um, I, I look forward to more of your historical fiction, actually. We'll see what... Okay. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Wow, you made it to the end. Well done. Ellen's new book, The Short Knife, can be found in the library and anywhere that you'd expect to find good books. For more information on our digital offer, you can visit our website, kent.gov.uk forward slash libs, or visit the link below. To keep up to date with what we're doing on social media, follow us on our Facebook page, also linked below. If you liked what you saw, why don't you throw us a subscribe or a like, but don't feel obliged. I'm Simon from Kent Libraries. This was On The Books. Good day, and we'll see you soon.